All right, Revelation chapter number 3, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Revelation chapter 3, verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 6. The Word of God says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be here in your house. What a privilege to be here today. Part of the redeemed uh, church of the living God that we could be here, rejoice, stand here, robed in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, help us to never take for granted what a glory it is to be a child of God. I pray that you would speak to hearts this morning. May your word, Lord, I know it is living. I know it is quick and powerful. But may it take life before us, Lord, as it speaks to hearts. May it be more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper as it speaks to our situation and circumstances. Lord, I pray that we would read it and and trust it and believe it and obey it with the reverence that it is due. Lord, we just submit ourselves before you today. If there's one that's lost before us, I pray that you'd show them that you love them, Lord. Not that, not that, Lord, they, they might be sitting here thinking that you hate them, that you're mad at them, uh, that you're angry with them. Lord, I know that you love them, and I want them to know that you love them, that you care for them, that you sent your Son to die for them, and that they can be eternally saved by your grace if they'll just come unto you. And I'll be sure to give you the praise for whatever's done today, Lord, for it surely will be due to your name. We ask it in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We have been over the past few weeks preaching through and spending a little time in these letters that are written to the seven churches in Revelations chapter... Really, they're written in chapters 2 and 3, although we spent a week in chapter 1 looking at a message that was given to to the church, uh, generally speaking, or broadly speaking. Uh, It was a message that was given that encompassed all of these churches. And then God gives specific messages to specific churches. You say, preacher, why do specific churches... Uh, get specific messages because they're specific churches. Amen. God deals with us. He knows what we need. Amen. He doesn't just deal with everybody the same. I'm glad for that. Now, it's true that everybody has to be born again. It's true Christ died for every man. But what I'm saying this morning is God knows where you're at and God can speak to you about what's going on in your life. I'm thankful He can speak directly to us this morning, specifically to us this morning, distinctly to us this morning. God knows what He's doing. I'm glad He can speak to His people. Amen. And so we, as we have read through these and preached through these, our desire has been to pick up on a major theme that is found. What was the, the point of the letter, if we can say it that way? Usually if somebody calls you, if they text you, uh, or if you, you're one of them old school people who likes writing letters, I got a letter in the mail this past week. Amen. Wasn't a good one. Somebody say amen to that. But I found people write letters when they're mad. Amen. They text when they're happy, but they write letters when they're mad. I don't know why that is. But... uh if you're one of them people still writes letters, what's the purpose? What's the point of that of that letter? Well, we've been looking at each of these and examining the major themes that God 
has given throughout. And this morning I want us to take a moment and look at this letter to the church at Sardis. And I want us to examine it with this thought in mind. The Lord says about this church, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Now of everything else God says to this church, It is all based upon this one observation and this one declaration that God makes. That this church, though from outward appearances, everything seemed okay, seemed appropriate, though it seemed like they was really going and growing for the Lord. When you looked at it through the eyes of God, He said, you have a name that you live, but in fact, you are dead. I want us to consider this message this morning and and just move through the passage that is before us and, and see what God has for us. Let me say a word first about this church. This was a literal church, as all of these churches have been, a literal church that existed at a time uh, in history, and God uh, writes to them specifically. The word Sardis means escaping ones, or those who come out. The town of Sardis, situated in the fertile valley at the foot of Mount Timolus, lay about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, and 50 miles east of Ephesus, at the junction of five main roads, making it a center for trade. As the ancient capital of Lydia, it was one of the richest cities in the world. It was also a military center, for it was located on an almost inaccessible plateau. The Acropolis of Sardis was about 1,500 feet above the main roads, and it formed an impregnable fortress. The main religion in the city was the worship of Artemis, one of the nature cults that built on the idea of death and rebirth, so similar to reincarnation that is so prevalent today in Eastern religions. Well, even there in Sardis, there were some that believed in these nature cults. Sardis was also known for its manufacture of woolen garments. Now, both of these facts bear significantly on Christ's message to the church. You say, why is that, preacher? Because here was a group of people that surrounded by this concept that you could be dead but really be alive. And he writes this church and says, no, listen, it's the other way. You think you're alive, but really you're dead. And he talks to them about being robed in white. Now, this would have been meaningful to them because one of the things they took pride in was the clothes that they manufactured. He says to them, listen, you need a different coat than the one that comes out of your wool factories. You need a different kind of covering and garment than what your hands can provide yourself. The city at that time was but a shadow of its former splendor. And the church, unfortunately, had become like the city. It was alive in name only. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this. Dr. Vance Havner observed that spiritual ministries often go through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. Let me say that again. Four stages that a church goes through. A man, a movement, a machine and then a monument. Sardis was at the monument stage. I've known a lot of uh, churches like that. Haven't you known churches like that? Everything that was good about them happened 50 years ago. Amen? Everything that they, every, every good thing that happened about them was something they wanted to talk about. And I praise the Lord for what He's done in ages past. Aren't you thankful? Uh, listen, I, I, I'm thankful. I'm surrounded by the work of men that have gone before me and, and I'm standing here behind a pulpit that I didn't build and in a building that I didn't build. I, I don't want to denigrate that. But listen, uh, a church ought not be obsessed merely with what's happened in the olden years, but what God's doing in this day as well. Sardis was in the monument stage, but there was still hope. The message to Sardis is a warning to all churches that are living on past glory. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, something we have observed is that each of these letters begins with the description of the Lord. And when you read in uh, Revelation chapter 1, there is a long description of the Lord. 
And when you look at each of these uh, snippets, if you will, these excerpts that are given at the beginning of each church, God will emphasize something in the description of Christ that He has drawn from that vision in chapter number 1. Sometimes it's He that has the keys. Sometimes He's the Alpha and Omega and the Amen as it's said to the church at Ephesus. Well, what are we told about the Lord here in the letter to Sardis? Notice with me verse number 1. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, as we said, each of these descriptions bears deeply on what the Lord's about to say to him. And he's about to speak to this church at Sardis and tell them, you got a name that you live, but you're dead. you got things that are barely hanging on and they're getting ready to perish and you better repent and you better get right. So why did he begin by reminding them that Jesus is him that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? I, I jotted it down this way. He describes himself as the Savior with the seven spirits and the seven stars. What is he intimating there? Well, let's just take him in course. The first thing we notice is he has the seven spirits of God. I've had a lot of questions about this throughout my ministry. People wonder about that. They say, preacher, I thought there was only one spirit of God. What does it mean when it says seven spirits of God? This language is found again in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter number 5, when it talks about the lamb slain having the seven spirits of God, which are the eyes of the lamb or the eyes of God. What's it speaking about? Well, as always, the Bible is our greatest commentary. And we find in Isaiah chapter number 11 a clue to understanding what this means. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. It's talking about the Messiah. And it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. So it's talking about a descendant of Jesse and of David. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now listen, I know you've already got your daily intake of Sesame Street, but would you count with me this morning? Would that be okay? Let's just do it together. You ready? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Did He have seven different entities living within Him? What empowered Him for His earthly ministry? We're not left without an answer to that. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number 3 at the baptism in Jordan that the voice of the Father speaks from heaven. It's one of the great verses about the Trinity in the Bible. People that reject the Trinity. I don't know what they do with Matthew chapter 3 because you have the voice of God speaking from heaven. You have the Son of God being baptized in the Jordan River and then the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God descended upon Him in the likeness of a dove. I don't know what you call that, but that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the power that energized the Lord Jesus Christ in His, in His ministry, that whereby He ministered and performed miracles and did these things, was the Spirit of God. So when it talks about the seven spirits of God, it's not saying seven individual spirits, but all of those are characteristics of Jesus Christ. Well, where did those characteristics come from? They came from the Holy Spirit. Can I say to you this way? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit of God does. It's what He performs. But these seven spirits are what the Spirit of God is. They're His characteristics. If you were to describe me or to describe you, you'd probably use a lot of adjectives. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But you're describing one person. And what you're doing is describing characteristics, their personality. Well, these seven spirits describe the fullness of the Spirit of God or His character 
or his personality. So when it says the seven spirits of God, it's not saying he's got seven individual spirits, but rather that these are the characteristics of the Holy Spirit of God. Now let's stop and think about what he's saying here. He says, I'm the one that's got the Holy Ghost. I'm the one that's got the Holy Ghost. In other words, he points to the ministering power of the church. Can I tell you, listen, if the church is ever going to be what it needs to be, it's going to be that by the power of the Spirit of God. It's going to be that by the power of the Spirit of God. All of the church's man-made programs, however good they are, however meaningful they are, can never bring life in and of themselves. Any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. The church was birthed by the Spirit of God and its life comes from the Spirit of God. When the Spirit is grieved, the church begins to lose life and power. When sin is repented of and church members get right with God and with each other, then the Spirit infuses new life. We have a name for that. We're getting ready to have one here in a few weeks. We call that revival. Amen? In other words, revival is not a series of meetings. Revival is not a series of activities. Revival is when God's people begin to get right with God and with one another and seeking for the power and blessing of the Spirit of God in the house of God. So here's what he wants them to understand. You're dead and you need life. And here's where you're going to get it from. You're going to get it from the Spirit of God. Listen, if Walridge is going to be what she ought to be, what, what she ought to be in the eyes of Christ, we need the Spirit of God. We need to allow Him to govern our services. We need to allow Him to govern our lives. We need to allow Him to guide and dictate our ministry and what we're doing here. And we ought to determine in our hearts that if, if we have to meet and God can't meet with us, then it's not worth meeting. Amen? If we're going to get together, what we're doing here, we ought to welcome God into this place and allow Him to have the headship and authority in our services. So, I see the ministering power of the church. Number two, I see the mighty presence in the church. He says the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we already know what the stars are because Revelation chapter 1 told us the stars are the pastors of the seven churches. And what he is suggesting to us here is that he's holding them in his hand. He's got a hold of them. And thereby, he's got the church uh, by the hand. He's holding them. He's, but you know the precious thought to me this morning is that he's that close to us that we're in his hand. Now, that's not strange language. Uh, John chapter number 10 tells us that. That we are within the hand of God. And it's a reminder to me, listen, we have everything we need. We've got the Spirit of God here to minister to hearts. We'll just have our hearts open to Him. If we'll be honest and humble before God, ask God to show us what needs to be repaired in our life, what needs to be repented of in our life. Let God have control over our hearts and over our minds. And we've got the presence of Christ Himself in this place. For we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I could sum it up this way. Some of you said, preacher, I wish you would. I would sum it up by saying the Lord, before He ever, ever begins to reprimand them, He reminds them that they have everything they need, but Charlie, everything they need to be the church God wants them to be. Can I tell you, listen, we have everything we need to be a church that glorifies God. Uh, you might say, preacher, it would be better if we had this this property or these facilities or this bank account or, or, or these uh, people, this talent, this program, whatever it might be. And listen, all those things might be good and have merit in and of themselves, but we really don't need any of those things to be what God wants us to be. We have everything we need. What do we have, preacher? we got the Spirit of God and we have the presence of Christ. We have everything that we need. So he begins by reminding them that he's there all in all. And then he says three things to this church. I want you to notice them with me this morning. First, he gives the assessment of the church. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'd love to know God's mind on a matter? I think that all the time. I think, you know, I, I'm making this decision or that decision in life. Boy, I just wish I knew what God thought about it. And certainly we can pray and seek the Lord's face and mind and, and He'll reveal those things to us. But I'll tell you a scarier thought. Have you ever thought, I wonder what God thinks about me? 
my life, how I'm living, what I'm doing. Has the thought ever crossed your mind? I wonder what God thinks of how I'm living my life. Well, here in Revelation 3, he tells the church at Sardis what he thinks about their condition. And he basically says two things about them. The first thing he says is that they were dead. He says, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and are dead. Now, what does he mean by this? He doesn't mean physically dead. Uh, If he did, there'd be nobody to send this letter to. Rather, he means they are spiritually lifeless. Let me go a step further and say, while the church at Sardis was probably like most churches, there's probably some lost folks in it. I don't even think this is a statement upon their standing with God necessarily. I think what he's saying is you look like a living, vibrant church, but to reckon things the way God reckons them. I view you as being dead and lifeless. Now, before we hammer on them, and we're going to be pretty mean to the church at Sardis this morning, all right? So go ahead and get get ready. Get your stomping boots on. We're going to be rough on them, all right? But before we do, let's let's notice a few things God says here. Notice first off the resume of the church. He says, I know thy works. Can I say to you this morning, a church that isn't doing anything, isn't doing anything. But a lot of churches that are doing something still ain't doing anything. I, and what I mean by that is this, that, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to compare ministries as far as their scale or their popularity or, or anything, their prominence, but what I'm saying is this, a church, of course for a church to be living and thriving, it has to be actively serving God. God didn't save any of us for us to sit, but He saved all of us for us to serve. And as such, it's appropriate that we serve the Lord. And if a church is going to be what God wants it to be, it'll be an active serving church. But the fact that it's active and serving does not necessarily mean that it's what God wants it to be. There's a lot of sometimes busyness without business in the house of God. And the church at Sardis was not an inactive or idle church. He says, I know thy works. Not only that, he says, thou hast a name that thou livest. Not only did God know about the works, but everybody else knew about the works. Can I tell you one of the most common questions that's asked to me? People come and visit our church and talk to me about joining, talk to me about searching for a church. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just my experience. Maybe I'm just not hip and cool enough. That's probably true. But I talk to a lot of people uh, that don't even settle here. They're looking, they're looking other places and so on and so forth. You know, one of the main things they always ask me, preacher, what kind of ministries do you have? What kind of ministries do you have? Now, don't misunderstand me. That is an important question. Uh, certainly we ought to seek to be going to a place that is that is actively serving the Lord and meaningful. But can I tell you this, just because a church has a bunch of ministries, that don't mean it's really ministering. Just because it has a bunch of activity does not mean it's necessarily active in the right way or in the right things. The church at Sardis was a serving church. The Lord says, I know thy works. You're not lazy. You're not idle. You're not sitting around just wanting somebody to feed you a feel-good message. You're serving the Lord. But you know it's possible to serve God or to serve what looks like serving God and not really be serving God at all. God judges the motive. God judges the heart. God judges the method. I'll get it. I don't know why I'm having trouble with that word judge. It's probably because I'm not judgmental. Ken, that's probably what it is. I'm so nice I can't even say the word judge. But, but, God judges the method, he, he judges the means, He judges the motivation, He judges all those things. God has a big criteria, and I'm not saying we have to be perfect. None of us are perfect, but I'm saying this, it's not enough just to eke out activity. We must be doing the very will and heart and mind of God 
in our church. So I see the resume of the church. Number two, I see the reputation of it. He says, thou hast a name that thou livest. You know, if you had asked people, if you've been walking down the road and said, where's a good church? Nobody does that anymore. But if you just to Google it on the Internet in the first century like they did, uh, if you were to Google, you know, good independent Baptist church in Sardis, you'd find this church. Uh, if you were to read all the reviews online, you'd find it got good reviews. If you were to call maybe an area pastor or if you were to ask your pastor, you're moving there and say, preacher, where should I go to church when I get there? They'd probably say the name Sardis. I'm saying it had a good reputation. Had a good reputation. This was not a place that people warned you against. In fact, if you were going there, it is probably the place that most people would recommend you going. And yet God says, you got a name that you live, but yet you're a dead. Can I make this statement too? And, and I know we're beating up on poor Sardis this morning. They ain't even here to defend themselves. But let me make a statement to Walridge this morning. Even as individual believers, just because everybody else thinks you're something don't mean you're something. Just because everybody may think I'm something, that don't mean I'm anything. I'm saying it's possible for everybody to look at your life and think everything looks right, but God's opinion be entirely different. They had a reputation. And listen, you ought to have a good reputation. I'm not opposed to that. I think we ought to be mindful of our testimony. Listen, it's good to guard our spiritual heritage. We need to remember what things have done, been done for us. It's good to guard it, but listen, we must not embalm it. It's not enough to be true to the faith and have a great history. That faith must produce life and works. The church had grown comfortable and content, was living on its past reputation. There was reputation without reality, form without force. Like the city itself, the church at Sardis gloried in past splendor, but ignored its present decay. Can I tell you something? You know this to be true about life. How many of you are to the age now where you know that bodily decline is a constant. I mean, it takes all the money and all the time you've got just to not die. It seems like all the time something's breaking and something's going wrong and something's, something's tearing up. You're afraid to go to the doctor because he's just going to find 12 more things wrong with you you didn't even know was wrong with you in the first place. Can I say this to the people of God that are, that are actively engaged in the church? If you spend enough time as a steward of the house of God, the same thing's true of even a property, even a facility. One of the things that most people don't understand, if you spend enough time paying attention to the, to the business of the house of God, you'll find that there's always something breaking. Always something. I need, where's Don? I need a good hearty amen from Don. He's the one who fixes a lot of them. There's always something breaking. There's always something tearing up. Listen, we got, we got four or five heat pumps on the place. People probably wonder sometimes, preacher, seems like we're always fixing a heat pump. Well, you only got one at the house. We got like six here. Amen. So, There's always something tearing up. There's always something in a state. And it is a constant battle to keep decay from sitting in. Now let me say this to you. Somebody should have replaced the batteries in that clock. I'm going to preach till 4 o'clock today. No, I got this little one up here. Amen. But let me say this. Spiritually speaking, that's the case as well. Did you know that you don't have to do anything for a church to die? You just have to not do anything for a church to die. It's in a, there's a constant pull towards apathy, towards backsliddenness, towards routine, and nothing more. And if we're not actively fighting against it, we'll wind up like Sardis. We'll have a name that we live. But notice what he says. The resume of the church, the reputation of the church. Well, what was the reality of the church? He said you are dead. Dead. In other words, from the outside looking in, there looked to be life. But if you could have viewed the church the way God viewed the church, you would have seen that in actuality, it was dead inside. 
the, the death was spreading from the inside out. I, I jotted down an interesting thought I want to share with you. Did you know astronomers tell us that the light from the Polaris star, the North Star, takes 323 years to reach Earth. That's how far away it is. 323 light years. That's the distance that light travels in a year. In other words, it takes that light 323 years to reach Earth. You know, based upon that, that star could have been plunged into darkness 323 years ago, or in 1698 before there was an American uh, nation, uh, before uh, the vast majority of modern technology was still around. I I mean, uh, in, in 1698, that star could have died, and its light would still be pouring down to earth. It would be shining in the sky tonight as brightly as if nothing had happened. It could be a dead star shining solely by the light of a brilliant past. The church at Sardis was like that. It had a name but it was dead. It was shining solely by the light of its brilliant path. We must be constantly vigilant that we don't allow spiritual death to set in in the house of God. I, I'm not, listen, I ain't preaching other churches this morning. I'm preaching the Bible this morning, so I'm not going to waste the time doing it. But I've seen it happen time and time and time and time again. I've seen men of great force of personality and oftentimes great devotion to the Lord that God has used to birth a great church that has been used mightily to reach people for Christ. And then the church did the wrong thing. It quit becoming the body of Christ, Brother Charlie, and it started becoming the body of the founder. What happens when you're following the body of the founder? What did God do with Moses' body in the Old Testament? The Bible says that He hid the body of Moses. And you say, preacher, why would God do that? Because if He had not, they would have never made it into the promised land. They would have set up a shrine and a memorial and built a city right there in the wilderness and said, we're never leaving because this is the body of our founder. Time and again, I've seen this happen in ministries where it quit being the body of Christ and it started being the body of the pastor or the body of the founder. And you know what God had to do? He had to bury that body. He had to destroy that work to get men to move on and to seek Him once again. I'm telling you, there's a great danger. We ought to never let it become the body of Brother Toby, the body of any other preacher, any other pastor. It's the body of Christ. He's the one that it's all about. It's not about me. Listen, I get run over by a bus or some church member finally pop off and shoot me dead. You find you another pastor that loves God, loves the Word of God, and you go on. You forget about my name. Quit talking about me. Just keep talking about Jesus and go on and serve until Jesus comes back. The reality of the church, it had died. Though the light was still shining, it was dead. So I see they were dead. Number two, let me say this, not only were they dead, but they were dying. And you say, preacher, wait a minute. I thought you said they were dead. How were they both dead and dying? Well, as a whole, the body had died. But there were still some things worth salvaging that were dying. Can I give you an example of this? Whenever oftentimes a person's body dies, one of the first things that's a priority if they are an organ donor is they want to get in and get what organs are still alive. God's in organ harvesting mode at the church at Sardis. They are a dead church, but there's still some things worth saving. Notice what he says to them. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. So he says about them, you're already dead, 
The life is leaving this local body of believers. But there's still some things worth salvaging there. Here's what you need to understand. He makes three statements. One, he points to the fact that they were sleeping. And he said, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he says, be watchful. And that carries the idea of a watchman that keeps a watch during the night. And, and, and that person is, is there doing that job because they are awake. And it's almost like when he says, be watchful, it's almost like he's telling them, wake up and recognize the danger that lies ahead. You know, if we're going to be what God wants us to be, and if we're not already, you say, preacher, what's the first step? We've got to wake up and realize how dangerous things are. I don't want to get in the whole thing about the history of our country and where we're at and the mess that we're in today. But suffice it to say, there was a lot of time in our country where we rested on the laurels of the glory of our great American empire and assumed that we could not be toppled, assumed that we could not be infiltrated, assumed that we could not be corrupted. You say, preacher, what happened? That whole time the enemies were corrupting and toppling and infiltrating. And by the time people finally woke up, it was too late. Now people say, well, preacher, we we got to do something about this. But we all scratch our heads and say, what is left to do? The reality is what was left to do should have been done many, many moons ago. And now things probably are in many ways on an irreversible course in our country. You say, preacher, that sounds terrible. Hey, don't get discouraged. God's on the throne. Amen. It ain't about this kingdom. It's about His kingdom. But but, but I am saying to you this morning, spiritually speaking, uh, the first step, when you think there ain't a problem, that's the time to look for problems. I ain't talking about problems with your neighbor. I just made a whole lot of work for myself as a preacher. (laughs) I don't mean problems with your neighbor. I mean problems in your own life. I mean, in other words, when you think everything's together, that ought to be when you're going to the Lord and saying, Lord, search me. Try me. See if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. Probably by the time things are getting ready to fall apart, things are going to fall apart. You need to be watchful. So he says they were sleeping. Number two, he notes that they were perishing. He says there's some things that are barely hanging on. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, it could get worse for the church at Sardis. It could get worse. There were things still left. Though you looked at their life, looked at their church, and there did not seem to be much there. There were a few things and a few people that were seeking God and serving God and loving God. And he says, listen, those are the things you need to focus on. Those are the things you need to prioritize. I'm going to make a statement right here. I hope you don't get mad at me. You've never done it before, so don't do it this morning. But listen, sometimes as a pastor and even as God's people, you can focus on all the things that discourage you. Or you can strengthen the things that encourage you. There'll always be somebody getting mad. There'll always be somebody getting twisted up, knotted up, angry and leaving. In 10 years of pastoring, I've learned church is like a greyhound bus, man. Somebody's always getting off. Somebody's always getting on. That's just the nature of it. And if you're not careful, you'll spend all your time focusing on those things that are dead already instead of strengthening the things that remain. We can either live discouraged all the time because something went wrong, somebody hurt us, somebody disappointed us, or we can grab hold of those things that God's doing in our life and in our church and we can march forward in the power of God and say, Lord, these things are meaningful. These things are worth saving, worth salvaging. And we're going to go on and see God do great things through this. Uh, so many churches die because they're too busy trying to emulate other churches instead of encouraging and growing and culturing the things that are godly in their own place. Listen, Walridge don't have to be like any other church. It don't have to do what another church is doing. 
If we're doing what God wants us to do, that's enough. Amen? That's, that's what we want. You say, preacher, I wish we could do this and I wish we could do that. There's a lot of things I wish we could do. But I'll tell you what I know we can do. We can do what God has set before us in serving Him, in plowing the field that God has put us in, in tending the garden that God has given us, and we can watch God grow that thing in our lives. And that's true for your life as well. You can spend all your time saying, boy, I wish I was like this person. I wish I was like that person. But wishing ain't never changed anything. Or you can go ahead and say, hey, this is who I am. This This is who God has created me to be. I may not be as capable as this person or that person, but I'm going to do what I can for the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him and give my life to Him. So I see they were perishing and then I notice they were wanting. He says, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. He looks at him and he says, you got some good things. And praise the Lord, you ought to strengthen those good things. But he says the sad truth is, your works are not perfect. Now that word perfect does not mean morally spotless, but it means brought to fruition or complete. In other words, it doesn't mean sinless, but rather it means complete and appropriate. And what he's saying is this, there's some things that are good, you need to emphasize those things. There's some things that aren't so good, you need to get rid of them. He says, but there's some things missing that ought to be there. We ought to look at our lives and say, Lord, what's missing? And I don't mean some kind of great existential crisis of faith, but I mean just looking at our lives and saying, Lord, is there something I ought to be doing that I'm not doing? Is there something that ought to... So often preaching is focused on the idea of getting rid of things that don't belong in our life. And listen, we need that. If you're like me, it don't, I mean, I don't even have to try to get in trouble. I just do it. I'm just capable. I'm good at it. I'd win a gold medal for it if they gave one away in the Olympics. And And so often our preaching... And when I say our, I'm blaming you for me. I really mean me. <laughs> that, that's what, that's the royal. I said that in Sunday school this morning. I talked about we and I said, that's the royal we, which means me, but it means you're getting blamed for something I'm doing. Amen. But when us preachers, maybe that's a little better in our preaching, we focus so much on things that are in people's lives that need to be gotten out. And that's true. We need to do that. There are things sometimes, oftentimes in our life that are grievance to the Spirit of God and to the holiness of God and we need to repent of those things and get them out of our life. Let me say, sometimes what's wrong with a person's life is not what's there, it's what's not there. It's not what they're doing, it's what they're not doing. What's not present in that place. So you ought to look at your life and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be more than what it is? Are my works wanting towards the Lord. So I see his assessment of the church. Number two, I see his advice to the church. He tells them how to get things straight and he tells them there needs to be three things. One, there needs to be a remembrance of the past. He says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. It begins, he says, with remembering what you once were. Now this is funny advice, isn't it? Because it seems as though this is a church that's all caught up on its nostalgia. It seems like the kind of church, and I've been to them sometimes. I, I pastored, uh, or I didn't pastor. I've only ever pastored here, or here's pastored me, whichever you want to say it. But I, I've got a friend, and he's preached for us for us, a good man, that used to pastor a church. And this church was founded by a very strong personality. A good man of God that was an evangelist in, in the area and had started this church, and it was a great church, and, and he was a great man of God. But after he died, that church, it quit being, it quit being a church and started being a museum. And you'd walk the halls of it and there's all these pictures up of people that was dead 40 years ago. And it got to the place, he said, in pastoring it, everything I want to do, they would say, well, that's not what brother so-and-so would have done. And that's not what brother so-and-so would have done. And that's not what brother so-and-so would have done. And you say, preacher, whatever happened to that church? Well, they got rid of that good man of God. Uh, They got rid of that good man of God that would have led their church forward and grown it in the glory of God. And they got themselves a museum curator. 
And all his job is is to get up and try to be as much like that first guy that started that church as is humanly possible. There's danger. I'm not saying we should not remember. In fact, I'm getting ready to say how we should remember. But there is a danger in growing addicted to the nostalgia of what God has done. So he, he's fussing at him. He's saying, you think you're something, but you're, you're dead and, and, and you have this reputation, but it, there's no substance to it. So isn't it strange he'd begin by telling them to remember? But notice what he says. He does not say, remember therefore what thou hast done and what thou hast achieved. It's not what he says. He does not say, remember therefore how things used to be and how you used to do them. Rather, he says, remember what? Two things. What you've received and what you've heard. In other words, he tells them they need to be reminded of the spiritual life that they had received. That God had birthed their church in a time of revival. You know, every church is born in a time of, of revival. In some time of the Spirit's moving, it's only when the first movings of God are forgotten that a church settles down and becomes institutionalized. And he's saying you need to remember how that God performed a miracle in your hearts and birthed this place out of His mind and out of His dream and out of His imagination and how God, through the Spirit of God, transformed your life and gave you new life in Him. In other words, we don't need to forget just how this whole thing got started. Uh, you know, you may say, preacher, I've only been going here a few months or a few years or whatever. I wasn't around when it first started. But listen, Walridge, like every single church, uh, while churches have interesting, that's to put it lightly, past, every single one of them are birthed by somebody that cared enough about the Lord to want to see a work done in a place. Every single one of them. So he, he reminds them they need to remember the spiritual life they had received. Number two, they need to remember the scriptural truth they had received. He said not only what you've received, but what you've heard. In other words, he's reminding them that they have a spiritual responsibility in accordance to the truth that God's given us. You know, all of us, we have a responsibility to the truth that God's given us. Every time, I heard it said this way, and I think this is probably pretty accurate. God gives man light, and man is then expected to walk in that light. If he chooses not to, he's walking in darkness and he stumbles. But if you'll walk in the light that God's given you, God will increase that light more and more and more. You know, we could say it this way. He grows us in grace as we walk in obedience to Him. And He's reminding them, listen, y'all had a lot of light at one time. God did a great work in that place. Don't forget what God has given you. Number two, He reminds them there needs to be a recognition of the present. He says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and he says this, and hold fast and repent. Remember what God's given you, but pay attention to what you're about to lose. He tells them two things. One, there are some things that they must fortify. They've got to hold fast. Now, what does it mean to hold fast? It means to hang on to something. He's told them that there uh, are some things that are getting ready to die in their church. And he says, you better grab hold of them. You better rescue them before they perish, before they die, before they go away. Anybody in ministry will tell you that it's a lot easier to see a ministry die than it is to see one be birthed. It takes a lot more work. I mean, you don't even have to do nothing to watch a ministry die. It'll just die on its own. But it takes a lot of work to birth it. Well, you know, this is true. This is true biologically. Some of you ladies that have had children, you know that, listen, it took a lot of work to birth that child into this world. But how in only a moment their life can be snuffed out. Uh, the same thing is true spiritually. They said there's some things you've got. You better not lose them. You better hold on to them. And as a people of God, listen, when God's given us a burden for souls and a sensitivity to the Spirit of God, when God's given us a place that, that, that is founded on true and right doctrine and a place where the worship of the Lord... Hey, listen, it don't, it don't take much to kill worship. 
It don't take much to kill worship. I'm going to say it again. It don't take much to kill worship. I, I mean, I try to be mindful of it as a preacher because it don't take much. Sometimes just a comment that's meant in, in, in good intentions uh, can, can uh, bring about a, a dampening of the presence and worship and spirit of God in a place. It don't take much. When, we, when you got a place you can worship, and, and when you got a place that, that preaches right, teaches right, uh, when you got a place where folks love on each other and they ain't perfect, but they love each other, when you got a place where folks care whether other people die and go to hell or not, when you got a place where folks want to take care of each other, hey, that's a precious thing. We better hold on to some things. We better hold on. He says there's some things we must fortify. Then he says there's some things we must forsake. He says hold fast and repent. Now, uh, somebody might say, well, preacher, which is it? Do they need to hang on or do they, do they need to let go? Well, the truth is there's some things they need to hang on to, but then there's some things they need to let go of. Anything that's impeding their spiritual development in the Lord, they need to get rid of those things. You know what the criteria ought to be for the inventory we take of our lives? It, spiritual inventory. When we look at ourselves and say, how am I doing? Am I living for the Lord? Am I doing what I need to do for the Lord? You know what the criteria should be? Do I have anything that slows me down in this race that I'm running? Do I have anything that prevents me from loving Christ more and doing more for Him? Now, I'm not talking about responsibilities that we have in life that we all have, but I'm talking about things that we've chosen to give a place in our life that prevent us from serving the Lord. We ought to say, listen, if it's, key, if it's holding me back, I'm going to let it go. And if it's something that's pushing me forward, I'm going to hold on to it. So there needed to be a recognition of the present. Number three, there needed to be a readiness for the future. He says this, If therefore thou shalt not watch... I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, the question must be asked, what's the Lord talking about here? What's He talking about? There's two possibilities. One, He could be talking about the return of the Lord for His bride. And let me say this, that every New Testament believer, that's what we await, isn't it? Uh, that we, we look, we wait for God, for the appearing of God's dear Son. And we need to recognize that that appearing could happen at any time. He could return at any moment for His bride. There ain't no promise. You may be in great health. I hope that you are. Uh, you may have your retirement planned out long and fruitful. You may have all the plans set and situated. And you may feel like you're settled all everything. You've got your barns built and they're filled to the, to the roof with what you've got. But you know the truth is none of us knows when the Lord's returning. And we need to live ready for it no matter what else and other preparations that we may make. So it could be talking about the return of the Lord for His bride, but you know, I think it's probably talking about something else. I think that because we think of that thief in the night phrase and say, ah, rapture, that must be what it's talking about. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, certainly we need to be ready for the return of the Lord, but I think rather it's talking about the reckoning of the Lord in the body. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the body being the body of Christ. In other words, we don't have to wait till we die, nor do we have to wait for the rapture. God can deal with us any old time He wants to. The Bible says judgment begins first at the house of God. Hey, listen, the fact that you and I are part of this uh, New Testament church, born again, blood washed, that don't move us back in the queue. That moves us forward in the queue. In other words, God says, I'm going to deal with my children before I deal with anybody else. I try to do that as a parent. Listen, I'm not saying I'm above strangling someone else's kid, but I'll strangle mine first. Y'all get nervous when I say that. It's all right. The NSA knows my sense of humor. They're listening right now, but they know I'm joking. They know there ain't nothing to that. FBI knows I'm making fun. Don't get nervous. In other words, I'm going to deal with my child before I deal with someone else's child. Well, you know, God's the same way. God's going to deal with His child 
before He deals with the devil's child. It didn't move us back, it moved us forward. And we need to just recognize that any time God could call us into account. So I see the advice to the church. And finally, and I, I don't even have time to preach it. It's, it's 6 o'clock already and we're about to start our second service. But I see the assurance to the church. Now, look what it says. You know, the word Sardis means escaping ones or those who come out. The true character of the church was determined by the remnant of faithful people that was escaping the influence of the world around them. Maybe a better way we could say that is this. God don't judge by association. I'm glad He deals with us individually. In other words, you may look around and say, Preacher, I see people not living right. You go ahead and live right. God will deal with you. You say, what about them, preacher? God will deal with them. Let Him be God. He'll deal with them. But I think what it implies to us is that God was calling to this church to come out of this deadness and instead to walk in life with Him. And He points to two things that are encouragement, that are an assurance to this church. One, we see the virtue of this remnant. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We see the faithfulness that was recognized, or we might say it this way, what they had spurned. He says, you know, you got a few folks there that have not gone the way the world has gone. They've not defiled their garments. Hey, listen, this is part of that strengthening that which remains. It, it's easy to get discouraged at how wicked the world is and how wicked even the church has gotten in light of the world. We, we can spend all day being down in the mouth about that, but we ought to be reminded there's still some folks who love God, want to serve and want to walk with and want to live for them. And that ought to be our crowd that we want to be with, that we want to encourage. So we see the faithfulness that was recognized. Number two, we see the fellowship that was rewarded. He says, they shall walk with me in white. White denoting purity, denoting righteousness. We might say it this way, what they had learned. They had learned that if they would live clean lives, God would be precious and close to them, experientially speaking. Hey, listen, if you want God to be real in your life, and I'm talking to saved people this morning, if you're lost and you want God to be real in your life, you need to accept Christ as your Savior. And then what I'm about to say will apply to you as well. But I'm talking to saved people this morning. You say, preacher, I just want God to be real to me. Then walk in white. Robe yourself in His righteousness and try to live a life that's pleasing unto Him. Those that do, they walk with Him in white. And then He says this, for they are worthy. We see the forgiveness that was recounted. Or we might say what they had earned, not by their own merit, but by the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them, listen, the reason they can do this is because they're worthy. Now, none of us are worthy in and of ourselves. But they had been made white by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those garments that they had, that they put on, that they thought looks good, the Lord says, hey, you need to take off the old coat, put on the new. You need to have the righteousness of Christ in your life. But you'll find if you do, it'll make you worthy to walk in fellowship with the Lord. And then we see not only the virtue of the remnant, we see the victory of them. Now, there's a lot I need to say here that I don't have time to. But look at verse 5. He says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, I'd remind you that each of these promises given in these seven letters, when taken all together, they present an overview of what God does for the sinner. So, for instance, the church at Ephesus, he says he'll eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And you know, that's what a sinner does when he accepts Christ. He eats of the tree of life. It's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of Calvary and the fruit that came thereof. He eats of salvation in the paradise of God. And as you go through them, each of them talk about a different thing that God's done for the sinner when he got saved by the grace of God. And he makes application. Well, what does he say? Well, notice first off, he, he mentions the garment that covers. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. 
He's reminding them, no matter how dead and how defiled the church gets, it does not negate what Christ did for you when He robed you in His righteousness. Now, I want to be careful how I say this. That don't mean it don't matter how we live. Of course it matters how we live. If it didn't matter how we live, why would God leave, leave us here to live in the first place? Why would He not just take us on to heaven if it didn't matter after all? But Charlie, I mean, it, of course it matters how we live. But He's reminding us that God judges and reckons His people not by their own righteousness, or we might say their self-righteousness, but rather by the Savior's righteousness. In other words, I can't always, and I've had to learn this even as a pastor, I can't always change how people live. I can try. I've had people come to me sometimes, and I can tell story after story, but people come to me sometimes and say, Hey, preacher, so-and-so's been up to this. I'll say, yeah. They'll say, oh, yeah. And they'll just sit there and stare at me. And I'll say, they'll say, well, what do you think about that? I'm talking about sin. Somebody will be involved in something. Sin. They'll say, what do you think about that? I'll say, I don't like it. What do you think about it? They'll say, well, I don't like it either. And then they'll look at me. I'll look at them. And I'll usually say, well, I'm glad we got that out. Walk away. I don't know if you realize it, but probably nobody in a church is more grieved by people's disobedience to the Lord than the pastor is. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm the under-shepherd. I watch for their souls. It may annoy you, but it grieves me. It bothers me more than you could ever imagine. But something I've had to learn is, you know, at the end of the day, every one of us, we have individual soul liberty. We make our choices in life. doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility in the church and, and the body of Christ to, to be pure. And, and there's times that God even gives mechanisms for exacting those standards in the house of God. But I've had to learn people are going to do what they choose to do. But you know what encourages me? It don't matter how wrong they go. That doesn't affect how God deals with me. God's going to deal with me individually. I see the garment that covers. Number two, I see the guarantee that gives confidence. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, and I ain't got time to rehash it. But uh, when it says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, it's not saying if he doesn't do these things, I will blot his name out of the book of life. But rather what it is saying is he's reminding them that your sin debt was settled at Calvary. And no matter what happens from this time forward, it's not a risk that your name would be blotted out of the book of life. We can talk at length about what that book of life is and what the Lamb's book of life is and what a person's name being blotted out means and so on. But let me just encourage you saying this this morning, no matter how bad things get, doesn't matter what the church does, doesn't matter what other Christians do, that does not imperil my standing with God. He's not going to blot my name out of His book because of something somebody else does. But notice the glory of the confession. He says, but I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Now who's He talking to? He's talking to those few names. He's talking to those folks that have made up their mind to be pure and to be clean and to be right and to be devoted and to be passionate that are there in a dead and a dying church but have said, I'm not going to die. I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on living for the Lord. And he says, listen, you can't keep those folks from dying around you. But I promise you this, if you seek me, I'll make sure that every promise I've made to you, I'll keep. You'll have life and you'll have life abundant. You'll enjoy walking with me and fellowship with me and living for me. All of that contingent not upon what somebody else is doing but rather upon themselves and their obedience to the Lord. I'm saying this. You say, preacher, what do we do about the church? Well, in as much as we are the church, we get our life in order. In as much as we are the church, we are Walridge Baptist Church. That's who we are. We're that called out body of believers that meets on Walridge Road. We're Walridge Baptist Church. If we want to fix Walridge Baptist Church, we start by fixing us. Fixing us. You say, but preacher, the problem ain't me. Well, number one, you might be surprised. But number two, even if it's not... 
You cannot change what they do, but you and you alone can change what you do. You say, preacher, we got a good church here. And I'd say amen to that if that's your sentiment. I believe that. I think we got a great church. I think God's blessed us. I think God favors us. I, I think He's present. But you say, preacher, I look out in the, the church, capital C, generic, whatever you want to call it, the church out there, it's so wicked. Yeah, I know. I see a lot of that. I do. I'm not dismissing it. But I'm recognizing this. God's not going to hold us accountable for what the church across town does. But you better believe He will hold us accountable for what this church right here on Wall Ridge Road does. And so we can't change and affect them. But here's what we can do. We can determine that our corner, our place, our life is going to be right before the Lord. Do you have a name that you live? I hope that you do. Everybody ought to have a good testimony. But are you really living up to that name? If you're not, you ought to find a place down here and say, Lord, help me to fix what's wrong. Help me to get my life where it needs to be with you. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I invite you to come. Listen, if God if God spoke to your heart, you don't have to wait for a note to be played or for anybody else to move or do anything or for me to pray. You can slip out of your seat right now and you can come and meet with the Lord this morning. Father, I pray that you'd speak to hearts. I pray your people would be obedient unto you. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just live in the light and truth of it day by day. Bless this invitation in Christ's name. With